0: News. WTBN, Pinellas Park. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries.
1: We are super conquerors because not only uh, don't adversities harm us, but they actually help us. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. But in all these things, in all all the circumstances of life, everything that life has to offer, all the problems of life are used by God to refine us and make us more like Christ. That's why we're more than conquerors. Rather than the troubles and the trials and the difficulties of life destroying our faith, they drive us to Christ and they deepen our faith, don't they? They really do.
2: It's been estimated that Genghis Khan, conquered about 4,860,000 square miles of territory. His empire reached from the edge of the Korean Peninsula to the Caspian Sea and continued to grow after his death. He conquered more land than anyone in history. But you and I, if we are trusting Jesus, we are more than conquerors. We don't conquer people. We conquer anything that would try to come between us and our Savior and with his help actually gain spiritual strength from those situations. Welcome to Verse by Verse with Pastor Teacher Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Today Pastor Steve will be wrapping up a series of lessons about God's sovereignty and our security. As Paul reached the end of chapter 8 in his letter to the Romans, I can imagine him in my mind's eye as he dictated to his scribe. He must have been pacing and gesturing in his excitement over the glorious truths in these last two verses. There's just no way to not be excited about Paul's declaration in verses 38 and 39. But before we get to that, let's back up just a little bit. In verse 36, Paul quoted Psalm 44 saying, Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Wow. You mean it's not all daffodils and puppy dogs for us when we trust Christ? Some preachers would make that claim, but it's not what Jesus said. Here's Pastor Steve now to tell us about it.
1: Way back in the Old Testament, it was this way, and now in the Church Age, it's this way. Would you turn to Hebrews? Let me support that. Hebrews chapter 11. Great chapter on faith. Men and women who, who walked with God and believed the Word of God. You say, was life a piece of cake for them? Was it a breeze? We often just look at the first part of chapter 11 and forget that in spite of what they went through, they believed God. But verse 36 and 38 tell, tell us that some of them endured horrible circumstances. Verse 36, And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. It's always been this way. Great men and women of faith experienced the worst that the world had to offer. That's not all. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, He said, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For so they what persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's nothing new. God's choicest servants have been persecuted. So don't think that this is new. No, it's always been this way. In fact, you go back in the Old Testament and you see Daniel suffering for righteousness. And you see Joseph suffering for righteousness. And you see Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, weeping because of what's going to happen to God's people. And that they rejected the message of Jeremiah. Thrown in a pit. Dishonored by God's very people. They were all persecuted for righteousness sake. It is nothing new. In fact, it is the norm for us. The norm. John chapter 15, it's the classic passage in the New Testament on it. And Jesus said in verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you, and he had said it before and he was just telling them again, a slave is not greater than his master. Everyone would agree, that, agree with that. Slave's not greater than his master. What's the application? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. In other words, they'll treat you exactly the way they've treated me. If the world hates Christ, and it does then you know that the world hates us, and it does. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, the apostle Paul told the Thessalonians, he said, look, now you're getting affliction, but don't be concerned. I told you that it had to happen. This isn't anything new. You were destined for this. In fact, we're called It's suffering is a gift, according to Philippians. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says... Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Don't be surprised by it. Don't let it catch you off guard. Say, oh, I didn't know this was all part of the package. It is. is. Second Timothy 3.11 says, All who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now, that doesn't mean every day of our lives we're going to be persecuted. But it does mean that if you're standing for righteousness and confronting the world with holy standards, and you're living for Christ... You are a rebuke to the system, and somewhere along the line in your life, it's going to bring out the world's wrath. Maybe not every day, obviously not every, not every day. But if you're living godly, somewhere, sometime, you are going to experience the world's persecution. More psychological, perhaps, than physical, but nonetheless, persecution. You know why these truths may not have a great impact on us? I'll tell you why, because... We don't, as a rule in our Western evangelical churches, we don't live the kind of godly lives that bring out the world's hatred of Christ's righteousness and Christians. We're too busy compromising for the world to see any difference between us and them. We're too busy trying to be like them. We're too busy trying to win them to Christ by being like them so that the world has nothing to persecute us about. Why should they persecute us if we're just like them? They don't want to persecute themselves. It's only when by our godly lives and our witness that we are rebuked to their system that they come out against us. Because what we're saying to them is we reject your system. It is a false system and you are wrong. And the world and its pride just isn't going to tolerate that. So if they're not persecuting you, if you've never had any encounter of persecution and rebuke for your godliness, then you're not living godly lives or at least you're living a godly life in a secret secretive kind of way where nobody knows it. And I think there's another reason why this may not seem realistic to many of us, this truth that we're being put to death all day long, we're considered a sheep to be slaughtered. Because some Bible teachers don't teach this. In fact, they teach just the opposite. They teach uh, what I call the prosperity gospel. That God's plan for you in this age is to be rich and wealthy and live in comfort. I mean, the, the, the thinking is, you're a king's kid. Live like a king. Well, in this age, a king's kid lives by being slaughtered all the time. In the kingdom age, it's a different story. This is not the kingdom age. And so living like a king's kid means you live like the king who is rejected by this age and persecuted. So if you're a king's kid, you live like the king and you're treated like the king. Persecution. Paul said that the norm for the Christian was not to have a life of comfort and ease and wealth, but in this day and age, it's to be a sheep to be slaughtered. It's always been that way. It always will be until the kingdom comes. And I want you to know God doesn't shelter us from the storms of life, does he? But the question raised by Paul is, do the storms of life destroy our faith? That's the real issue. Do they destroy our faith? And there's no better answer to this, by the way, than Paul's own life look at second corinthians chapter 11 marvelous passage paul illustrates it in his own life second corinthians 11:24 five times i was beaten from the jews 39 lashes three times i was beaten with rods once i was stoned three times i was shipwrecked a night and a day i have spent in the deep I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers from false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such uh, external things, he goes on to say, "I I have pressure in other areas. Did Paul leave the faith? No, of course not. Did these adversities cause Paul to abandon Christ? Did they turn him away from Jesus? Did they cause him to reject the faith and say, I can't handle it. I'm going back to Judaism. I'm going to be a Pharisee again. It was easier that way. No, he didn't do that. No, a true Christian always, always, always perseveres to the end. Now, he may backslide at times. And he may get carnal at times. But ultimately, he will not abandon the faith. He will not reject the faith. Jesus said in John 8, 31, You prove to be my disciples because you keep my word. That's the proof. We keep his word. We desire to obey him. We don't turn our backs on him. False disciples do, though. False disciples turn away from Christ. Those who profess faith in Christ and never evidence righteousness in their lives... And then somewhere down the road say, look, I don't believe in him anymore. Never did believe. And if you look carefully at their life, you'll see that you never did see true spiritual fruit. Going to church is not true spiritual fruit. I want you to know that. Shaking hands with people and smiling is not true spiritual fruit. I mean, it's nice to do. We ought to do that. We ought to be friendly. But true spiritual fruit comes from the, the spirit of God producing righteousness in us. And you have to have a new nature to have that. It's godliness, it's obedience, it's commitment to the Word of God. But those who merely profess faith in Christ eventually fall away. 1 John 2.19, you ought to know this verse. It's a great verse. 1 John 2.19. They went out from us. And its context here is antichrist, those who are against Christ. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. John, how could you say that? How do you know, John? For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. It doesn't mean that he's saying that you can't leave one church and go to another. No, they left the faith. They would have remained with us in the faith. But if they, but they went out in order that it might be shown that they were all not of us. The proof that you're a believer is that you continue in the faith. You do not abandon it. And if you do abandon it, it means you never were part of it to begin with. That's what John says. Great illustration is found in John chapter 6. Let me paraphrase it for you. Jesus is speaking to the fickle Galilean Jews. They had just seen a miracle. He fed them. And they thought, great, we'll set up a welfare system here and we'll have him feed us. And they want to storm Jerusalem with the Lord, make him king, just a physical king, uh, to get the yoke of bondage from Rome off of them. And uh, Jesus begins to speak to them about commitment, about what it really means to be a disciple of his. And you know what they do in verse 66? They leave him. They depart. They forsake him. And Jesus is left standing there with his apostles. Everyone else is gone. And he turns to them and he says, will you leave also? Now the Lord knew what the answer was because these were true disciples apart from Judas. Who would have left if it wasn't so embarrassing. And you know what Peter says? He says, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now, that's the, that's the evidence of a true believer. No matter how difficult life is to you, no matter how the storms of life come crashing down on you, you have to say, if you're a true believer, in spite of the difficulties in living the Christian life, where would I go? I mean, I've had to say that. I've had to go through that. When living the Christian life became so difficult and taking a stand on things became so hard, I had to say, but where would I go? Lord, only you have the words of eternal life. There's nobody else. So Paul asks if there's any circumstance which could defeat us to the point of causing us to lose our salvation. And you know what the official answer is? It's found in verse 37. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. What a verse. In other words, far from defeating us, We triumph over every adverse circumstance. We don't just win by a shade. We overwhelmingly conquer. The word overwhelmingly conquer is really one word in the Greek language. And it's very similar to a a sneaker, a tennis shoe that people have called a Nike. In fact, it's made up of two Greek words, hyper and nikeo. If you've ever seen a a, a Nike sneaker, there's a big swoosh on it. Now, that's not because they like that design. The swoosh means victory because Nike, in the Greek language, Nikeo, was the winged goddess of victory. That swoosh means victory. And a wing symbolizing Nikeo. When the Apostle Paul says, we are more than conquerors, he means we are victors, supreme. We are hyper-conquerors. We are super-conquerors. We aren't simply conquerors. We are more than conquerors. How are we more than conquerors? Is that just a nice expression, or does it, does it have meaning to it? No, it, it has meaning. What is a conqueror? What is someone who defeats his enemy called? A conqueror. If you defeat your enemy, you are a conqueror. But what is more than a conqueror? I'll tell you. A super-conqueror is one who not only defeats his enemy, but who uses his enemy to help him. That's more than a conqueror. We don't just beat our enemy. We are people who, are, who use our enemies to help us. We are super conquerors because not only uh, don't adversities harm us, but they actually help us. You know what I think verse 37 is saying? The same thing as verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good. And I think there's a parallel there. But in all these things, in all, in all the circumstances of life, everything that life has to offer, all the problems of life are used by God to refine us and make us more like Christ. That's why we're more than conquerors. Rather than the troubles and the trials and the difficulties of life destroying our faith, they drive us to Christ and they deepen our faith, don't they? They really do. They help us define our spiritual priorities. When a Christian's in trouble, it's, it sobers him up. They remind us of true biblical values. They turn our attention to the Lord, to, to His glory. They create a longing for heaven. The deeper the problem, the greater our response to Christ, the greater our helplessness and sense of, of utter helplessness. The psalmist said, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. We more than conquer because those things help us. When I first accepted the Lord as my Savior, I went through some, uh, as I look back now, some incredibly difficult times. Uh, many of my friends wanted nothing to do with me. I began to have serious uh, and troublesome doubts about the Bible, about God's existence, about spiritual reality. I wondered what I, what I had done. I had abandoned uh, one religion to come to Christ, and uh, I had a very difficult time. And I began to be troubled about this. But I'll tell you what. Those struggles and those difficulties only drove me to the Lord. They didn't drive me from him. They drove me to him. Never away from him. Now there were momentary times of carnality and questions but not ultimate abandonment to the faith. They just caused me to long for him in a deeper way. They caused me to be more committed. I realized there's no place for shallow Christianity with Christ. It's either all or nothing. And so... I was more than a conqueror. Well, what more can Paul say? He's already told us about the promise of security, its purpose, its process, and then the problems of security, but as Paul brings his his message to a close, he gives us his final conclusion about divine sovereignty and eternal security, and I call this the persuasion of security. Let's look at verses 38 and 39. For I am convinced, I am persuaded, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul doesn't have a doubt about it when it comes to the security of his salvation. He is confident. He knows who he has believed and he has persuaded he's able to keep that which he's committed to him. His knowledge of the truths of Romans chapter 8 have persuaded him. As Paul ends his discussion on security, you know what he does? He searches the universe, high and low, for anything that someone might say could separate us from the love of Christ. He picks up where he left off in verse 35 with the sword. So first he looks at the realm of death and he says, can that separate us? Can death do it? No. No, death can't. Why? Absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. No, death can't separate us from the love of Christ. Paul turns to the realm of life. He says there's nothing there that can do it. Nothing. Calamities can't. We've already gone through the worst that life has to offer. Death can't. Life can't. Then he looks to the angelic world. Would good angels, could they separate us? No, good angels wouldn't even try to separate us from Christ. Then he looks to demons, that's principalities. Demons would try, but they can't do it. No, demons can't, not even if they try, and they do. But then he begins to examine the realm of time. He looks at things present. He finds nothing in this age to separate us from Christ. He peers out into the future eternity of things to come, he says. And there's nothing in the future that is able to separate us from Christ's love. Nothing in all of eternity in the future that Paul says could separate us from Christ. Then he turns his gaze upon Satan and Satan's powers. And he says the powers of Satan can't separate us. No miracle that Satan performs. No power that he could could do that could separate us from from God's love. He scans the entire universe. He looks at its height and its depth. And he can find... Nothing from one end of space to the other that can cut us off from God's love. Now Paul is a wise man. And he knows that just as sure as he's gone over all these things somewhere, someone's going to say, but Paul, you forgot. You failed to say this. And so Paul closes by saying, nor any other created thing. I mean, that covers it. That's it. It's like Paul is saying, I know somewhere... You're going to say, Paul, what about such and such? And so Paul says, and no other created thing, nothing, nothing in all of creation will do it. Absolutely nothing is able to break the eternal golden chain that binds the heart of God to his people. The prophet Jeremiah said to Israel, as God spoke to them, he said, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. That's true of you. God loves you with an everlasting love. It will never end. No matter what you do, it will never end. Paul was absolutely certain of this. Are you? Robert Bruce lived in the 1600s. He was a disciple of John Knox and of Andrew Melville, and he died in 1631. The day he died, he came to breakfast, and his young daughter sat by his side. And as he mused in silence, suddenly he cried, Hold, daughter, he said, Hold, my master calleth. He asked that the Bible should be brought and it was brought in, but his sight failed him and he couldn't read it. So he said to his daughter, Cast me up the eighth of Romans. And he repeated much of the latter portion of this scripture till he came to the last two verses. I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he read that. He said this. Set my finger on these words. God be with you, my children, he said. I have breakfasted with you and shall sup with my Lord Jesus this night. I die Believing these words. You know why he died believing these words? Because he lived believing these words. Do you believe them? Are you persuaded? Do you live believing this? If you do, then you face life with the greatest of confidence in Christ. If you do, then you haven't got to worry about your assurance, about your salvation, about your security. Paul said, I am persuaded. After all is said and done, the only thing he could say is, I am persuaded. God's word persuaded him, not the arguments and opinions of men. God's word. Are you persuaded? I hope you are.
2: Heavenly Father, this is an amazing chapter. We've just finished studying, and I thank you for the promises in it. And Lord, if if there's someone listening now who doesn't have these assurances, I ask you to speak to him or her clearly and draw each of us into a close, saving relationship with you so that we can know for sure that nothing can ever separate us from your love. Amen. Thanks for tuning in today to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. For more about Lakeside, go online to lakesidechapel.com or call the office at 727-441-1714. You can get a free audio CD with this message by calling that same number, 727-441-1714. Ask for message 5445, What Shall Separate Us? Or listen again on the Message Archive page at versebyverseradio.org. That's versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson. For Pastor Steve and the rest of the Verse by Verse crew, thanks for listening. We invite you to join us again for the next Verse by Verse as Pastor Steve launches into yet another one verse at a time series of scripture lessons.
0: You've been listening to Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. This program was pre recorded. To learn more, including how to donate to this ministry, visit versebyverseradio.org. That's Verse.
2: We are here to give you strength between.